welcome to the New Life Fellowship podcast. New Life Fellowship is a community of grace in Kitchener, Ontario, Canada. Our goal is to teach and share and experience the life of Jesus Christ together. You're about to listen to a message from one of our meetings. Please make sure to check out our website, newlifekw.ca. Without further ado, let's listen in. Well, good morning, everyone. You know, it's, it's always a real honor for me to get up here and, and get to address and speak to you guys week after week. Uh, but I got to tell you, it comes with so much pressure. And, and not the kind of, of public speaking kind of pressure. I'm, you know what, I know I have freedom to fail and I almost expect it to mumble through some words. And so that doesn't bother me so much. I think the, the pressure that I feel though is in the, the responsibility in which the message I deliver. That when I get up here, I'm not just sharing my own opinion. I'm, I've, been, I've been spending my week in Father's word and trying to understand what he's saying, what he wants to communicate with you, each and every one of us helping us to realize that something that was written 2,000 years ago still applies and matters to today. That, that it, although it was written to another group of people, people haven't changed. People are people. And, and therefore, Father wants to say something to you and I today through his word. And the pressure is, don't screw that up. And, and, and the reason is because if, if I misrepresent God in some way, then that's going to cause trouble, not just for me, but for you as well. And, and so it's, a, it's an honor, but it's also a bit terrifying in some ways that way. And, and partly because I also know how the enemy wants to misinterpret God. You know, I find it interesting in Genesis chapter 3 where we, we read about the fall. We read about the, the, the beginning of the, of the downfall of man. And the, the first time we see the serpent and he speaks and he says, did God really say? You know, his, his whole approach there was to undermine God, to, to begin to question his character and who he is and, and what he wants to do. And, and misrepresenting God could begin to lead to all kinds of other problems. So in the case of the garden, it was, his God is basically, he's not really out for you. He's, he's holding out and, and he's not really for you. He's not really on your side. And, and so you have to take matters into your own hands. And, and he's really trying to protect you from experiencing real life, which you can find on your own. And, and that approach, I think, continues to today. It's still happening in, in various forms that the enemy's trying to do so. And, and that becomes effective, I think, when we begin to create a God or we have an image of God that is more like us or, in the, or the world than who God really is. So you think about it this way. In, in the beginning, you and I, mankind, was made in the image of God. But what we've been doing ever since is trying to make God in our own image. And therefore, we project onto God what we would feel, what we would think, and, and so forth. And, and the enemy is happy to play that, that game, happy to encourage that kind of thinking, knowing how it will begin to mess with how we live. So this morning, we're going to look at a passage that I think has caused all kinds of, of misunderstandings and mis, miscommunication about who God really is and what he wants to do. And so we're going to read Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 30, and hopefully we'll begin to see the freedom and the heart of who God really is, to see the nature of, of, of his heart and, and his attitude towards us. So Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 30, Paul writes, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we 
As we look at this passage and understand a God who grieves, and what is it that causes you to grieve, and, and why are you grieving, and, and so forth. Father, we're, we're treading on some pretty sacred holy ground because it's involving our hurts and it involves those areas that have been, been wounded by others. And so I pray, Lord Jesus, this morning, especially this morning, that you would be the teacher, that you would, you would teach each and every one of us who you really are, and that we would see the, the glory and the magnitude of, you, of your love and your heart, even in those areas where you, your heart is breaking, where you're, where you're grieving for us. And I, I pray that as we leave here, we'll leave in freedom. In your name we pray, amen. Well, whenever, whenever studying a passage, I think it's sometimes helpful to start not with what the passage is saying, but to actually start with what the passage is not saying. Because if you know what the passage is not saying, that allows you to kind of rule out any, any interpretations that may not be correct. And so the first thing that I want you to notice about this passage, about what it's not saying, is it's not talking about God's anger. Paul's command, Paul's instruction here is, do not anger God. That's not what he's saying. He's not talking about that. And, and I think that's important to understand because so often our view of God is one of an angry God. See, every one of us, we have a concept of God. We have an idea of what God is, right? And I think what's happened is, like I said, is that we are made in the image of God, but we've tried to make God in our own image. Maybe that's sort of that, the, the remnant of us thinking that we ought to be like God and ought to live like God. And so what kind of self-respecting God would disagree with me? And so we kind of project onto God what we think he's like and what he would think he would think about. And part of it often really comes from our parents, it's interesting, there's a, in our, in our counseling, we have a, a, a series of tests that we can do to help people understand their concept of God. And, and one set is, is basically it, you do a fill out a questionnaire about who you think God is. And then a couple weeks later, what you do is you give them the same questionnaire, but this time they fill it out about their mom or about their dad or their primary caregiver. And what's interesting, when you line up the results, they almost overlap each other. And it makes sense, right? I mean, you think about it, we talk about God's a father. And so you begin to think, well, what kind of a father did I have? And then you project onto God what your father was like, and suddenly you have God. And it may not matter that your father wasn't a good man or, or was a bad man or anything like that. It just, that's what begins to happen. And so we must, we think God must be thinking the same things that my own father thought. I mean, think about it. Did you ever have this growing up as a child where your mom was, was particularly frustrated with you on that day and you weren't really paying much attention to what she was saying? And then she makes that statement, wait till your father comes home. <laughs> have you ever tried that, Kim? Right? Wait till Adam, wait till your father comes home. And, and there's this, there's a threat to it, right? There's this, uh-oh, I'm in trouble. I better, maybe if I behave the rest of the day, she'll forget and everything will be okay. And, and so there's this, this fear because whatever angers mom angers dad and then therefore I'm in trouble. And you see, Paul's, he's not giving us this kind of a warning. He's not saying, hey, make sure that you're behaving well. Make sure you're doing you know, the right thing because you don't want to anger. You don't want to upset God. Wait, because if you are, well, just wait, wait till God comes home. Wait, wait till judgment day and then then you're in trouble. And, and that's not what he's warning about. So the reality is, Paul has no fear of God's anger. 
And, and not because Paul mostly did things right and he figured it balanced out. It's just that he understood that there was no opportunity or place for God to be angry towards his children, towards his kids. That's a, that's a big statement, but it's true. You see, to understand that statement, we need to understand the cross again. And, and I think really what needs to happen is whenever, whenever we're trying to understand theology, whenever we're trying to understand what, what Father's Word is saying, we always have to view it in the context of understanding the cross. That becomes a central part. And if we can understand the cross, then we can understand Scripture. But if we don't understand the cross fully, then it's going to be really difficult to understand the Scriptures. And so let's come back to the cross. And in Romans 5, in, in verse 8 and 9, Paul writes this. He says, but God, but God demonstrates, God proves, God shows his own love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, while we were yet messed up and dirty and rebellious and giant failures and no good and against him, that's when Christ died for us. Much more than so much more than having now been, been justified by his blood, now being made righteous by his blood, now being made approved and accepted and good and okay by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. That word wrath is really just another word for anger. Do you understand that, that emotions, that there's all kinds of words for sadness and all kinds of words for anger and all kinds of words for happiness and so forth, but really, you know, those words that all describe happiness are just degrees of happiness. And the words that describe sadness are degrees of sadness, and the words that describe anger are just degrees of anger. And, and so really what we see here is, is that when Paul's talking about the wrath of God, He's talking about all the wrath, all the anger, whether it be high, medium, or low. You see, the reality is that there are, there are levels of wrath or anger that are high, things like irate, things like furious, things like enraged and incensed. Those are high levels of wrath. Those are high levels of anger. If you ever see your mom irate, kids run. That's, that's good, good advice. That will, that will let you see your 30th birthday. But then there's some, the medium levels of wrath, medium levels of anger, like ticked off or peeved or just, just mad. And then there's these low levels of anger, like annoyed and frustrated and disappointed and agitated and upset. And what, what Paul tells us here in Romans 5, 9 is that you and I, we've been saved from not just the high levels of wrath, but you and I have been saved from all the wrath of God. And, and so what that means is that, that, that you've been saved from God being furious and incensed and irate towards us. But to be honest, I don't tend to struggle with that one very much. I mean, I used to at one point. I used to think God was just really so angry with me. It was that wait till God comes home sort of idea, or wait till I get home and get it. I used to think that about God. But, but now I, I don't struggle with that one so much. But it's not just the high levels of wrath that in anger we're saved from, it's the medium ones. We're, we're saved from God being ticked off 
and peeved with us. We're saved from God being mad at us. But it's also true, and this is maybe the hardest one to really embrace, but the most powerful is even those, those low levels of anger we've been saved from because of what Jesus did on the cross. Because of his sacrifice, because what he accomplished, God is no longer annoyed with you. God's not frustrated with you, Eldon, not ever. God's not, God's not ticked off. He's not disappointed in you, Matt. There's, there's nothing, no degree, not the smallest bit of anger remaining. All of it has been poured out on the cross. I mean, think about it. That's such a hard thing to understand because when I look at my own life and, and I think about the sins that I just keep doing over and over again, the times that I fail, I fail my, my wife, I fail my kids, I fail, fail my friends, I fail you guys. I just, just can't seem to get my life sorted well enough. And, I, and again, I know God's not like ready to strike me now with lightning bolts anymore, but, but surely God's got to be annoyed. I'm annoyed with me. How can God not be t- ticked off or, or just a little bit, little agitated with me? Like, come on, Ross, get it. What, why can't you learn this lesson? And he's not. He's not ever disappointed in you and me. Can you, can you receive that one? Because it's true. I mean, let, let's think about it logically. How, how can you disappoint an all-knowing God? I, I had one friend, he is, is brilliant saying, my friend Dan, he likes to say this, has it ever occurred to you that nothing ever occurs to God? You see, he already, he already knows what's coming. He already knows what's going to happen. Which means, Marco, he knows about the sin that you're going to commit in three years from now. The only sin that you'll commit. But the, the three, it's a doozy, though. I mean, you've been saving up. I mean, when you get there, Janice, duck and, duck and roll. That's all I'll say. I, I won't tell you anymore. But, but he, he knows about it. He, he knows what's coming. And he already took it all into account. And, and so his love for you and I is not reactionary. It's not, I love you because you've been doing well, but I love you a little bit less now. It's, I just love you perfectly. I love you despite what's coming, despite those sins. And, and so there's no disappointment in God's eyes. I mean, think about it this way. Remember the story of Peter and where he denied Jesus three times? See, Peter, Peter thought he would never do something like that, but, but Jesus knew all about it. Hence, Jesus predicted it. I mean, he, he told Peter that he was going to do it long before he did it. So it never caught Jesus or God off guard. He understood and he knew all about that, which is why he went to the cross in the first place. You see, how many of our sins did he die for? Or when he died for our sins, how many of them were future? All of them were. And so he's already dealt with them. And so none of that matters. So there's no anger in God towards you and I. So that's the first thing he's not talking about. The, the second thing that I think is really important for us to understand about this passage is, is Paul's not trying to use this passage as a way to use a guilt trip to manipulate and control a person. And, and I know for a lot of people growing up, you know, the, the one family trip they went on regularly was to a place called guilt. And mom and dad would use guilt to manipulate and control and, and so forth. And, and, and I hear this sometimes in, in pastors and teachers. 
I, I think I grew up with this message. It's the idea that something like this, that, that Jesus died on the cross for all your past sins, for all the sins that you've committed up to this point. But every time you, you sin again, it's like driving another nail into Jesus. Oh my goodness. I mean, think about the, the, the guilt, the, the shame that comes with that. I mean, like, what is happening if that's the case? Is, is Jesus on a cross somewhere and, and God's watching and he's like, oh, oh, there's another sin. All right, angels, put another nail in Jesus. I mean, is that what's happening? Because if it is, then we ought to send a rescue team for Jesus. And I suggest we start with Guantanamo Bay because he's clearly being tortured. But it's not what's happening. You see, he already died on that cross. He's already paid for all the sins. And so he's not suffering every time you and I sin. That one sacrifice was enough. See, in Romans chapter 6 and verses 9 and 10, Paul writes this, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer has master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin how many times? Once for all. There only needed to be one sacrifice. And that one sacrifice was enough. And so he's not saying, you know, guys, don't sin because every time you sin, you're hurting little baby Jesus. That's not what he's talking about. All that suffering has happened. Jesus doesn't feel that pain anymore. He's not continually being crucified. So what then does grieve God? What is, what is the source of all this? If it's not, if it's not about his anger and if, if it's not about, you know, using guilt to control and manipulate people, then, then what is the point? What is Paul warning against when he says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God? Well, the, the word grieve in Greek is lipeo, and it, it means to have sorrow. It, it means to have sadness or, or a heavy heart. Which is interesting because... That means God, the Father, can have all that. That God, Holy Spirit, Jesus, they can experience sadness. They can experience grief. They can experience loss. They can experience all that. And, and so what's causing that? Well, I think it's too simplistic just to say sin causes God to grieve. I, I think it's true, but it, it lacks real depth and meaning. And, and so as I thought about it this week and pondered it, I, I think there's probably three main reasons. There might be more, but there's probably three main reasons that causes God to grieve. But the first thing I want us to understand about that, about the nature of grief, is that grief requires love. Do, do you see that? that? That without love, there can be no grief. That, that the level of grief that you experience will always be connected to the amount of love that you feel for that other person. Think about in your own life when, when there was someone that was close to you, they passed away. Maybe it was a, a parent. Maybe it was a child. Maybe it was a sibling. Maybe it was a, a spouse. Maybe it was a friend. Someone that you were close to and someone that you loved deeply and now they're gone. Well, them being gone, that that now creates that grief, and it's there because of the love. If you didn't love that person, when they leave, when, they, when they're gone, it, it, it doesn't matter. If anything, it might even be a time to rejoice. 
But grief is always connected to love. Which tells us something then. If, if we can cause God to grieve, then clearly he must love us. Clearly that there's a, there's a degree of love that, that is there for us. And, and it comes down to really the choices that we make primarily. So, so the three reasons we want to look at, the, the first one I think is actually connected to the passage. Right? So in verse 30, it, it actually, verse 30 should begin with the word and. So it's really connected to verse 29, what we talked about last week. And verse 29 says, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. See, I think, I think when we mistreat one another, when we, when we cut each other and we tear each other down rather than build each other up, I think that grieves God. And, and it makes sense because it's the kind of grief I think that God has can really only be best understood by a parent watching their kids interact with one another. When, when you see your kids begin to, to bite and, you know, physically and, you know, you know uh, metaphorically, when you begin to see them fight and, and attack and, and just cut down, it just, it breaks your heart as a parent. And I think God feels the same way when he sees us as kids. That we, we lose out the opportunity to, to encourage and to build up. And so he sees this in, whether it be in marriages, in friendships, in churches. Too often, the enemy is using these, these hurtful words to drive a wedge. And, and I think that's connected. That's in large part what Paul has in mind is that when we use these unwholesome words, it's God is sad to see his kids hurting this way. The, the second reason for grief that I want to talk about this morning is it isn't primarily attached to this passage. In the sense that I don't think it's primarily what Paul had in mind, but I do think it's what causes God to grieve. It's, it's the sin and death in this world. See, remember, you and I, we were, we were made for paradise. We were made for the Garden of Eden. We weren't made to, to suffer this way. We weren't made to die. We weren't made for this kind of loss. And, and yet we find ourselves in this place. And, and God knows that and God understands that. And he has sorrow and grief alongside us. Remember in John chapter 11, this is the story of, of Lazarus, where Lazarus has passed away, Lazarus has died, and, and Jesus, getting word that he was sick, he didn't immediately go to his rescue. Instead, he, he waited a couple days, and then he, he traveled to where Lazarus was. But Lazarus had long died. He had been buried and, and, and sitting in the tomb now. And, and so Jesus shows up, and, <clears throat> and it's a funeral. Everyone is sad. Everyone is, is upset. Everyone's crying. And, and so here's God, and here's Jesus, and he, he speaks to them. And, and Mary comes up to Jesus. This is basically, if you're only here, you could have stopped this. And she's bawling, and everyone's crying. And we get the shortest verse of the whole Bible. What is it? Jesus wept. Please understand, he, he wasn't crying because of the lack of faith. He wasn't upset with these people thinking, don't you know who I am on the resurrection? I can, I can raise Lazarus, have some faith in me for goodness sake. Have you not seen the miracles I've done? That wasn't what he was getting at. 
He wept because they were weeping. He had, he had grief and he had sorrow because they were experiencing that grief and that sorrow. I love how the, the prophet Isaiah describes it in, in Isaiah chapter 53 talking about Jesus and, and what kind of a man he was going to be. And it says he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. Jesus was the most average looking dude out there. There was nothing special about him. I mean, nothing, nothing would stand out about this guy. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Don't, don't miss that. You're, you're Jesus. He understands sorrows. He understands grief. He understands sadness because he's experienced it up close. It's not like he's just read about it in a textbook. He's experienced it. He's walked with it. He's a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one with whom men hide their face, he was despised. And we did not esteem him. But watch this. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. So he, he comes alongside you and I when we go through the sin and death in this world. And what I mean by that is whether you've been, whether you've been sinned against and other people's sin have caused hurt and damage in your heart, or, or whether it's just the natural course of this world that we're going through, or, or maybe it's just the, the overwhelming frustration that COVID has been these last nine months. The isolation, the loneliness, the, the losing out on the, the, the little things in life that just meant so much to us. The activities and friendships and get-togethers and celebrations, all that's been robbed from us. And it weighs on our heart. And God says, I know. I know. And it's okay. I'm right here. And I will carry this grief with you. And he's, he's the perfect one and the only one to do it. Matthew 12, verse 20, again describing Jesus. It says, he, a battered reed he will not break off, and a smoldering wick he will not put out. He's so gentle. He's so careful that you can trust him with your tender heart, with those areas that have been grieved and offended. We can hand them over to him, and we can trust him. Well, the third and, and final reason I want to look at this morning as to what causes God grief, how we could cause him grief, is, is probably the biggest source of God's grief. And again, it's, it's really, it's us and our choices, and it, and it comes down to this. It's, it's when we don't trust him. When we don't, we don't take him at his word. We don't, we don't take him on his actions. We don't, we don't believe him. In, in Matthew chapter 23, we have, we have Jesus towards the end of his ministry. He's, he's getting ready to go to the cross. He's getting ready to enter Jerusalem. And before he does that, he's sort of on the outside of town, high up, looking over the city. And he begins to lament. 
And, and he says in, in verse 37, he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I've wanted to gather your children together. The way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing. Again, as, as a parent, I can, I can begin to understand this. As, as a parent, you, you love your kids and you want to see your kids succeed and, and do well and, 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 and just make good choices knowing how much it will benefit them. And you can see because of your maturity, you can see because of what you've done in making those similar mistakes before them, you know what they're about to step into. And it, it pains you to watch your kids make these choices, make these decisions. And that's, that's Jesus here. He's looking at Jerusalem. He's looking at Israel. He's looking at his own people. And he's saying, I've wanted to protect you. I've, I've wanted to love you. I've wanted to look after you and care for you and provide for you and give you what you need like, like, a, like a mother hen would do with her baby chicks. But, but you weren't willing. You, 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 didn't, you didn't trust me to do it. You didn't think I could? Or maybe you just didn't think I would. Maybe you thought I was angry at you. Maybe you thought I was disappointed with you or that you hadn't earned it or, or even worse, that you deserved the negative stuff you're going through right now. None of that's true, Jesus says. I long to look after you. I long all that I need from you is to come. All I need from you is to take me up on my invitation and experience life in me. Prophet Isaiah records these words of God to the nation of Israel who, who like us, couldn't take God at his word. Please understand when you read the Old Testament or especially when you read about the disciples, don't read with a judgmental, condescending attitude because that's a mirror to you and I often. And, and Israel was going through a time where they, they weren't looking after, they weren't looking to God. They weren't running at, to him. They were instead trying to handle life and their problems on their own. They built up their own gods and maybe themselves as a god. And so Isaiah, he writes to them, he says, I shall make mention of the loving kindness of the Lord. That word loving kindness is a covenant word. It's the Hebrew word has said, and it means this idea of this covenant love. That unconditional, I'll always be there, love. And he says, I shall make mention of that, that covenant, unconditional, perfect love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord according to all the Lord has granted to us, and the great goodness toward the house of Israel, which he has granted them according to his compassion and according to the abundance of his loving kindness. It wasn't because they behaved well. It wasn't because they made good choices. It wasn't because they kept their nose clean. This loving compassion, this kindness was coming from God's heart, his compassion. For he said, surely they are my people, sons who will not deal falsely. So he became their savior. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. And all the things they went through, he went through and he suffered along with them. And the angel of his presence saved them. And in his love and his mercy, he redeemed them. And he lifted them and he carried them all the days of old. Sound familiar? 
And then the last line, but they rebelled and grieved his spirit. They, they chose to reject his love. They, they chose to reject him and his power. They chose to, to reject what he has done and let him be their savior. They've rejected their identity. And that's what we do. Not, not in the grand scheme of things, but in a moment. In any given moment, we're capable of doing all that. Of saying that, that God, your love for me isn't enough. That I, I need more. I need something on top of that. <laughs> that God, that your, your power to say no to this temptation or, or to say yes to your loving this person, your, your power isn't enough. I, I need more than that. I, I, I need relief. I need something else. Or, or we've rejected what he's accomplished on the cross. That you are actually forgiven of every sin, big or small, even the super big ones. And that you're actually now a new creation, a brand new person. You're, you're not that same person. I know what you're feeling. I know what you're thinking. I know what the enemy tells you. I know what shame whispers in your ear over and over again. But don't reject the cross. Don't reject what God says. Don't reject what God has done. Don't reject this new identity, this new righteousness, this acceptance, and this freedom. Because when we do, it, it grieves God. But please understand, he grieves because he knows the pain that we bring into our own lives. Like that parent watching their child hurt themselves. That's what he's talking about. And, and so this, this passage here, not grieving the Holy Spirit, goes on to say at the end of verse 30, he says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Now please understand the reason again is not a threat. It's, it's not talking about judgment day in the sense of just you wait. That's not what it's talking about. But that word sealed is, is talking about ownership. It's talking about being marked or, or branded, you might think of. So you think about maybe a cattle, and so the farmer purchases a cattle, he might brand that cattle to let everyone know this, is, this belongs to me, this is my cattle. And that's what you and I have been, has happened to us. We've been branded, we've been sealed, we've been marked by the Holy Spirit for that day of redemption. That day of judgment where the, where the unbeliever will, be, will face deep judgment and, and deep hurt and deep loss and even the wrath because they've chosen to reject God. We won't experience that. Instead, I think what Paul's referring to is this, this sense of hope. You see, that knowing that, that what you're going through might be hard, it might be difficult, but God wants to, to speak through that. God wants to work through that in some powerful way. That, that God wants to, he wants to redeem the moment and use it for our good and use it for the good of others. And basically, I think what Paul's telling us here is to, to live with the big picture in mind. To see that there's more going on in this world than just our own present moment. 
that we live with eternity in mind. Francis Chan has this great illustration that I'm going to steal. It's, it's, it's maybe his best illustration that he's, or best known illustration. But what he would do is he would, he would have this long rope, just, just hundreds of feet long, basically. It would go all the way out to the off, end of the stage. And, and he'd say, imagine this rope is your, is your life. It's a timeline. And, and then on the end of the rope, he would, he would wrap some colored tape about three inches or so onto the end of the rope. And he says, this, this rope is your whole life. It's your whole timeline. And it, and it goes off stage because it just keeps going and going and going and going. But, but this tape is your, your life here on this planet. These, these 70, 80, 90 or so years that you've got. And he says, what, what too often we do is we, we worry about those three inches. That, that, you know, we're, we're worried about just right here, thinking about what it'll do when we get to here and how we manage when we get to there. And we lose sight of the rest of the rope. We, we lose sight of all that God wants to accomplish and do. And it's not that those, those three inches are unimportant. They are. Because th- what happens in those three inches has a massive impact in what happens in the rest of the rope. But but you're not seeking the reward just in those three inches. That what you're doing is you're, you're working towards something that is greater. You're working to something that is beyond all that. And, and so that's the, that's the invitation I think that Paul's speaking of here. Is that when you're faced with a challenge, the challenge is basically there's the easy way out, which causes hurt, hurt to other people and ultimately to myself. And God grieves because he knows the loss that we'll experience. Or will I, will I choose a path that may be more difficult, that may require more of me in that moment, which is to trust him, to trust his life and his power, which might mean that I, had, I expose my heart to someone else. I, I become a bit more vulnerable to other people. Or he calls me to do something that that I'm struggling to do because I know how hard it's going to be to do it. But he said, do it. Trust him. Trust, trust God in that moment because in trusting God in that moment, great things will happen. Great things will be the result of all that. I want to invite the, the worship team to, to come back up and join me on stage here. I've asked them to, to play a song for us that, that the words are on the screen mainly so you can hear and read the words because the words, I think, are so powerful. Uh, so you can sing. I'm not going to tell you not to sing, but, but I, I really want you to listen to this song. Let, let, these, let these people sing this song over you because essentially it's, I think, a song that God wants to sing over all of us. And, and as I thought about how, to, how do I end this message, I... I wanted to make sure that we didn't make this all about us. That I, I want to make sure that, that it's still God's the main character of the story and we got to make it about him. And, and, and so how do, we, how do we make sure that it's all about him? And how do we make sure ultimately that he's glorified? And I said, so God, how do we, how do we glorify you in all this? And, and I think he said this to me. He says, the best way you can glorify me is by trusting me. 
by taking me at my, my word. And, and so basically, we have John, 1 John 3.23, where, where God says, you know, this is my one commandment, that you would, you would believe and that you would love other people. That's it. Trust me and love people. And, and, and I think he wants us to, to believe who we are, so not just so that we can love other people, but that we can even love ourselves. Because that's where it starts. If, if you can't love yourself, you're going to struggle loving other people. That's just the reality of it. And, and so this song, I think, is an invitation to you and I to own who we are, to own this gift of grace this gift of love, this gift of mercy that God's bestowed on you. And so I, I pray that you'll be able to own this belovedness.
will we, will we trust him? Will we, will we own all that he's given to us? That you are his beloved. That you're free. That you're clean. That you're pure. That you matter. That you're important. And that, that's not meant to just dismiss your griefs. It's not meant to just dismiss the sorrows and the difficulties. It's the knowledge that he's right there with you. And maybe he's weeping with you like he was with Mary at Lazarus' funeral. Maybe, maybe he wants to be the strength and the power to protect you like he wanted to protect Israel, but they weren't willing. Wherever you're at, trust him. Let, let him, let him love you. Let him be enough. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for all that you've done and what you've given to us. Because of the cross, you've, you've invited us into a family that is more than we could ever imagine or think. You've, you've made us your beloved. And so, Father, we love you for that and we thank you for that. And I pray that each and every one of us, that while we will continue to struggle with that at times, that we would, we would learn to trust you more, that we would allow that love in more and more, and we would experience the freedom that comes with it. But thank you, Jesus, that you're patient while we learn to trust you. You've been listening to the New Life Fellowship Podcast. Thanks for joining us. For more great content, please be sure to check out our website, newlifekw.ca, and sign up for our mailing list. Subscribers will receive our The Life in the Apartment ebook that is sure to encourage and bless. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and subscribe to our YouTube channel to watch the latest services and additional video content. New Life Fellowship is a registered charity that is supported by the giving of partners and friends. All donations will be received. If you would like to donate, donate at newlifekw.ca. Your giving is highly valued and appreciated. You are loved. Take care.